um, recorded by Qantas Airlines and their team of technicians who are uh, answering the questions and fixing the things that the mechanics are putting in orders for. So typical, and these are actually things that really happen. Uh, by the way, I've flown Qantas, it's one of the best airlines I've ever been on, really, and I don't think this reflects why, but at any rate, uh, questions such as the test pilot, the pilot put test flight okay except auto land very rough. The man fixing it, auto land not installed on this aircraft. <laughs> the pilot number three engine missing. Engine found on right wing and after brief search. So the serviceman, pilot aircraft handles funny. Serviceman, aircraft warned to straighten up, fly right, and be serious. <laughs> Pilot, target radar hums. Uh, the serviceman said, reprogram target radar with lyrics. And hmm, another one, mouse in cockpit. Serviceman, cat installed. <laughs> That's a fear, maybe perhaps. Well, there are a few more. Thanks. Anyways. <laughs> Sorry this is so light. I think the printer needs new ink down there. Anyways, we left off last week with First Samuel uh, leading the people, Samuel leading the people politically and spiritually and really in a military sense too as he prayed before they went to war. His home was in Ramah and from there he would ride that circuit and go from city to city in order to teach the people, <coughs> explain the law, deal with disputes that came up and deal with cases. So he did this for decades, his whole life. Uh, <clears throat> but nothing ever stays the same as we all well know. It is likely between 20 and 25 years between chapter 7 that we looked at last week to chapter 8 that we're looking at. And Samuel has become an old man and a new generation has come upon the scene in Israel with new leaders who have new ideas. Samuel is about to find himself in a very difficult, painful decision-making situation. And as I told you last week, this is the beginning of the second section of the book of Samuel. So the focus is now really turning from Samuel, the man, to Saul, the first king. So we read in chapter 8, the people tell Samuel to select a king for them. And it came about when Samuel was old that he appointed his sons judges over Israel. Now the name of the firstborn was Joel, the name of the second Abijah, and they were judging in Beersheba. His sons, however, did not walk in his ways but turned aside after dishonest gain and took bribes and perverted justice. So as the people came to Samuel with their message and their ideas, they have, have well planned, uh, planned and prepared presentation to make him for him. First of all, he's told, you're old. Nobody really likes to hear that one. You're old and you don't have a successor. They go on then to confront him with the painful reality that his two sons we're not like him. It's so sad that this godly man that we've been studying, uh, who followed the Lord, his sons did not follow the faith of their father. We can only speculate that perhaps Samuel was gone way too much during the circuit. We don't really know. 
<clears throat> he continually traveled, but his sons ended up acting as judges far away in Beersheba, where he was not around to check on how they were doing or how they were carrying out their role. It must have been a sword in his heart to have this accurate portrayal of his sons presented to him. They loved money more than they loved justice. They ended up using their position of authority uh, for personal gain. They were not honest and trustworthy like their father was. They perverted justice, took bribes, and how sad this is to me. And yet, really, there is nothing new. Uh, when we read through the scriptures, we have godly fathers having godless sons and vice versa. <clears throat> you would think Samuel would have been well aware of uh, the danger with his own sons, having grown up by the tabernacle like where we study with Eli and his two wicked sons. But we just aren't told any more than what's here. We aren't told if they started out well and then got taken up with the love of money and those kinds of things. But anyways, they used and abused their position of authority. And that's the facts presented to us. So it became ammunition for the people in making their case that we need to have a king. Besides Samuel getting old and having sons who were corrupt, the real key seems to be in the fact that the people want a king so they can be like all the nations around them. The elders to Samuel came to Samuel making their case to appoint a king. In verse 6 we read, but the thing was displeasing or evil to, uh, in the sight of Samuel when they said, give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. I, I love that his response is always prayer immediately. And that's what he did. He sees this request by the organized leaders of Israel really as a slap in God's face. While it was true that Deuteronomy 17:14 speaks that there would be a future king one day in Israel, this was not the time, this was not the right reason. Samuel's heart is breaking because he sees this request as a rejection of God himself by the people. The Lord was supposed to be their king. And the problem here is really an ungodly people wanting to be like the world around them. So in verse 7 we read, The Lord said to Samuel, Listen to the voice of the people in regard to all that they say to you. For they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. Like all the deeds that they have done since the day I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, in that they have forsaken me, served other gods, so they are doing to you also. Now then, listen to their voice. However, you shall solemnly warn them and tell them of the procedure of a king who will reign over them. I mean, Samuel had been serving this people. He was their political leader. He was their military leader. I mean, he didn't go out in war with the flag on his, on his horse, but he's the one who prayed, sought the Lord, and the Lord gave the victory. But that wasn't good enough. Samuel saw through their request and knew that the demand was really an indication of their spiritual state. In reality, they were rejecting God, and therefore Samuel's heart is so grieved, and he prays to the Lord to give him wisdom. What is he supposed to do with this? And we see from God's perspective that this was a rejection of himself and Samuel. The real rejection is God's headship and kingship over them. The people didn't ask, could you pray? Could you ask if this is the right time from Deuteronomy 17? Maybe, maybe this is the time. There wasn't any of that. 
the next generation had come up and they had certainly heard of God's deliverances in the past. After all, it's only a couple decades past the event that we saw, Ebenezer, where the God, a stone of our help, came and rescued us as people repented. So that's not that long ago. The Lord did have a king for Israel. In the future, he would be a man after his own heart. But this was not the time or the reason. However, the Lord told Samuel, go ahead, appoint a king. They had seen God's hand of protection, as I said, over that past big war with the Philistines. But they still wanted a human leader, like the nations around them. When the people had sought the Lord with repentant hearts and prayer, God had delivered them without a king because he was their king. But how often we behave in the very same way. We can look at them and go, wow, how thick are you? But we may look at the problem or a crisis or a trial that we find ourselves in and then try to come up with our own human solution to this situation. And instead of looking to the Lord first for our help and direction and his word, we decide how we believe it is that God should help this situation. And we fail to be at peace and trust the Lord to deliver us and trust the Lord to come up with the right solution. And we think of all kinds of ways he needs to do this. Sometimes the Lord gives us exactly what we ask for. And we learn the hard way that we should leave our burdens and our requests at his hand to do his will, his way, and in his time. How thankful we should be for the many times God did not answer our foolish or wrongly motivated self-centered prayers. Because he sees the future, he knows all things, and uh, he knows what's best for us. While Israel surely thought that their request was what was best for them, they thought it was reasonable, they thought it was a, res a solution. And you know what, they probably used the scriptures as a basis. How many believers do that? Oh, I know this verse. And therefore, this is right for me to do, even though out of context, maybe not the right time, and all of that. How wicked our own hearts can be in deceiving ourselves. Well, that brings us to the cost of a king. What would that look like? Samuel now warns the people of what it will be like to have this human king you insist you have to have. Instead of following the command to be different from all the nations around them, and to be holy, Israel prefers to be the same as everybody around them. It reminded me of Paul's word to us from Romans, be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by renewing your mind. Think biblically, think God's way. So God tells Samuel, testify against them and go into great detail about what they can expect when they get what they want in having a king. Your king will take your sons, your daughters, your skilled workmen, your property, your money for taxes and for government and for military workers, your best horses for his chariots, your best fields, your vineyards, your olive groves. The king will take your own servants and your animals for his use. And when all of that happens to you, it will be too late to complain about it you will reap the consequences of your own willful, sinful choices. In verse 18, then you will cry out in that day because of your king whom you have chosen for yourselves, but the Lord will not answer you in that day. And what's the response of the people? 
Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, we want a king. <laughs> it's not that bad, you know. You know how many times people have maybe warned us about a particular situation and we're like, no, 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 it won't be like that. Nevertheless, the people refused to listen to the voice of Samuel and they said, no, but there shall be a king over us that we also may be like all the nations, that our king may judge us. I mean, Samuel had to be thinking, hello, what have I been doing my entire life? That's, I've been carrying out that role. That he may judge us and go out before us and, and fight our battles. Now after Samuel heard all the words of the people, he repeated them in the Lord's hearing, and the Lord said to Samuel, listen to their voice and appoint them a king. So Samuel said to the man of Israel, go every man to his own city. No one listened to the warnings. They wanted conformity to the unbelievers in the culture around them. <clears throat> Were they shouting out the passage in Deuteronomy 17 as justification for their attitudes and action? I have a scripture why this is okay to do. After all, it was God's will at some point that Israel have a king. However, it was not the will of God for them to go ahead about getting a king in the way they were doing it, in the time they were doing it, and the motives for which they were doing it. It was the wrong time and the wrong place and attitude. However, God allowed this within his permissive will. God allows certain things to happen that are not in conformity to his word and what is revealed in scripture. Certainly God is sovereign, and the actions of his people never take him by surprise. There are certain aspects to God's will that are irresistible that will never change. <clears throat> he has made mankind responsible, though, for their actions and their choices. And God makes clear his will through his word. God allows things to happen, this to happen, things that happen, and Saul would indeed become the king. God warned the people against having a king at this time and their motives for wanting a king, but it was not heeded. <clears throat> Again, we find ourselves, I think, many times behaving just like the people here. As believers, we know that God is sovereign and over every event in our lives. We know that to disobey what is clearly commanded in his word is wrong, and it is not best for us to ignore it and may even result in his discipline in our lives. <clears throat> but the truth is, wherever we get and whatever we've done, God is still sovereign and we are responsible for our actions. God permits evil to happen, yet he is not the author of evil. Such was the case with Israel demanding a king. God was still in control, even if Saul was the result of the people insisting on getting their own way. <clears throat> Hosea quotes the Lord in reference to this event in chapter 13. God says, so in my anger I gave you a king, and in my wrath I took him away. And we'll see that in our study as we continue. <clears throat> in reality, <clears throat> excuse me, the greatest judgment of God can be when he lets us have our own way. <clears throat> you can talk to many a woman about this truth when they have knowingly, purposely married an unbeliever because they just love this person and the Lord will work all this out. And they've had a lifetime of heartache based on the decision that they've made. Now, was God in control? Could he have stopped them? Yes. But there are consequences to decisions that we make. And yet, God takes us right where we are and continues to make us more like Christ. Such a decision that can be clearly against the revealed will of God 
we can do in our own foolishness, as Israel did. But you know what? God is such a God of mercy and patience and forgiveness. So thankful for that. <clears throat> that brings us then to Israel acquiring their king. Now there was a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish, the son of Ephiah, the son of Benjamite, a mighty man of valor. And he had a son whose name was Saul, a choice and handsome man. And there was not a more handsome man than he among all the sons of Israel. From his shoulders and up he was taller than any of the people. Sounds like the same kind of guys that our world likes and looks up to, right? Tall, dark, and handsome. Much like our world today, people are attracted to this type of appearance. You may recall from Judges 19 the horrific events that happened in the tribe of Benjamin in their territory. Remember the Levite who came traveling through with his concubine? She was taken from him, brutally raped all night, and died as a result. He cut up her body, sent it to all the tribes in Israel, and they all gathered to attack the tribe of Benjamin. And Benjamin refused to give up the guilty and they were almost annihilated. However, God spared the Benjamin uh, tribe, and now out of that tribe is the son of, uh, of Kish. And Kish seems to be a great man of influence and valor. <clears throat> and the only obvious thing we see going at this point for Saul is his appearance. So in verses 3 to 11, we read about the providence of God at work. I love this passage. In many of our studies, we have seen God's providence at work in the mundane, everyday events of life. Remember when we studied the book of Ruth? She's gleaning in a field she just happened to stumble upon, and that's her kinsman redeemer. The book of Esther we studied, and we saw the king can't sleep. It's another sleepless night, and it's books brought out to read to bore him to death to fall asleep, and that's when he finds out what leads to the next work that God wants done. So, everyday mundane events, whether it's as I said, gleaning or reading boring books. <clears throat> in chapter 9, we read, in this case, it's about donkeys who have wandered away from Kish. <laughs> yes, in chapter 9, Saul's father uh, has lost donkeys, and somebody wasn't doing their job. I mean, I know shepherds take care of sheep. I don't know what you're called if you take care of donkeys. I don't think I want to know. But anyways, somebody failed in doing their job. So that was probably not an unusual occurrence to have an animal wander away after all they are stupid. So Saul was told, take a servant. You know what? He could have picked any servant. He picked this particular servant. Okay, come with me. And they went in search of the donkeys. And days of travel and travel brought no success. And after many days, Saul decides, you know what, we just better go home. My dad's probably more worried about us than about the donkeys. So God is the one who used the situation of the donkey, donkeys wandering off. He's behind the particular servant then who happens to be with Saul on this long trip. And this servant now suggests, oh, we're not far from where that, that man Samuel is, the seer, which is another name for a prophet. So let's go ask him. Maybe he knows where the donkeys are. So it just happened to be that it was this particular servant who had this particular thought. And then Saul said, but I don't have any money. And he said, well, I have some if we're going to offer a gift. So it's apparent that these two men had never met Samuel. They didn't recognize him. They didn't know him. Samuel is not, you would think the whole community would recognize him. But that was not the case. <clears throat> no one could imagine 
that a son in search of his dad's donkeys would be what God would use to sovereignly bring about the meeting of Samuel and Saul. As they said, the servant had the shekel of silver, and so they had their plan to go try to find Samuel. And we read that as they went up to the slope of the city, they found young women going to draw water and said to them, is the seer here? Okay, mundane, gotta go get water from the well. These are just the typical routine day events of everybody at that time. So they answered them and said, oh, he, he is, see, he's ahead of you. Hurry now, for he's coming to the city today, for the people have a sacrifice on a high place today. And as soon as you enter the city, you'll find him before he goes up to the high place to eat, for the people will not eat until he comes, because he must bless the sacrifice. So go up, for you will find him at once. And as they came into the city, behold, Samuel was coming out towards them to go up to the high place. So as he said, everyday events, everyday people, going about their everyday tasks, but nothing ordinary was going on in this meeting. The day before uh, Samuel came to the city, the Lord had revealed to him, telling him that there would be a man that he should anoint as prince over my people, Israel. And he will deliver my people from the hand of the Philistines. For I have regarded my people because their cry has come to me. Wow, in light of all we've just looked at, the Lord is moved by the cry of the nation of Israel, oppressed by the Philistines. When Samuel saw Saul, the Lord said to him, Behold, the man of whom I spoke to you, this one shall rule my people. This is the one at work, or rather, God is the one at work, orchestrating all of these events so these two men meet. Saul knew nothing about this day. It was like any other day that he was on his way home. But God is ordering Saul's steps. As Proverbs 16, 9 says, a man's mind plans his ways, but the Lord directs his steps. How many of us can look back on a particular circumstance or day in our life and see the hand of God at work bringing you together, perhaps with a spouse, with a medical doctor, with a particular friend, whatever, how he orchestrated and changed the events of your life forever. Such is the case with God working in providence to bring about his perfect plan. The amazing truth we can continue to see is in the next chapters is that even though Israel had demanded a human king, even though they had wrong motives, even though the timing was wrong, still the Lord hears the cries of the distress of his people being oppressed by the Philistines. God was moving Saul into a place now of leadership in order to deliver them from the evil of the Philistines. Aren't you thankful for the amazing mercy of God in our lives? How often we have failed to have the right motives or done something um, not at the right time, and yet he has met us in our difficulty, in our rotten situation which we've created, and rescues us time and time again. One Bible teacher put it this way, God speaks after the manner of men. He needs no cry to come into his ear to tell him of the woes of the oppressed. Nevertheless, he seems to wait till that cry is raised, till the appeal is made to him, till the consciousness of the utter helplessness sends men to his footstool. And a very blessed truth it is that he sympathizes with the cry of the oppressed. There is much meaning in the simple expression, their cry is come up to me. End of quote. It denotes such a very tender sympathy and a concern for all who are suffering, <clears throat> and the Lord answers prayer. 
God is never impassive. He's never indifferent to our sorrows or the suffering of his people. How thankful we should be for this truth. We see in our study that God providentially prepared Samuel to meet Saul and commanded him then to anoint him as Israel's king, ruler. God says that Saul shall be my prince, ruler, and leader. Saul is certainly surprised when invited to share in this big sacrificial banquet. He's already been told that his dad's donkeys are home safe, and he's told he is the desired one for Israel. He is given a huge portion of the meal to honor him before all the guests. So obviously he and his servants spent the night with Samuel, and they arose early, and at daybreak Samuel called to Saul on the roof, saying, Get up, that I may send you away. So Saul arose, and both he and Samuel went to, into the street, and as they were going down to the edge of the city, Samuel said to Saul, Say to your servant uh, that he might go ahead of us and pass on, but you remain standing now, that I may proclaim the word of God to you. And we'll see that next week, what it was that was proclaimed. Saul's life, as he knew it, was about to have a radical change. He had simply been an obedient son looking for his dad's donkeys. And at this little side trip was all of God's orchestration to bring about his will. God is graciously giving the people of Israel the king that they want. Not only that, we, when we first meet Saul here, we see his humility, we see transparency, and uh, just somebody who, who is a great quality. Sadly, that is going to change, as we will see in our study. But anyway, Saul is going to take on this task, and we'll see more about this next week. He started out with a humble spirit, uh, and he's informed that God has this role for him. So that brings us to just some thoughts of application quickly. I'm impressed with the humility always of Samuel and what a prayer warrior he is. You know what? He had faithfully served the Lord. The people really didn't appreciate that. There's nothing new about that. <clears throat> and he had served the Lord faithfully. His heart was broken over the sins of the people. But the fact that Saul and the servant didn't even recognize or know who he was to recognize him, he wasn't a man who lived in the limelight. And everybody has to know who I am, the great prophet of Israel. Secondly, we see Saul's out hunting for donkeys, not looking to be a king. And Samuel was wondering who should be the king. And here's a young man that is brought to him by God's providence. And, and Saul had no political aspirations. He wasn't like filled with himself at this point because I'm tall, dark, and handsome, and Israel wants a king. But this God's ways are not our ways. Thirdly, as we reflect back to chapter 8, I remind all of us of the danger of telling God how, it, how he should do things in our life and how you should work this out in this way for me. <clears throat> we are the ones who are to be in submission to God's will, whatever that looks like, even if he has a total different uh, plan than what we've come up with. We are not to be of the world. We're not to be like the world. We're to be separate from the world, and we're not to have the world's thinking not fall into the same sin as Israel did. We are to wait on the Lord for his timing. And sometimes things that we want are good things. I mean, it's, it's a biblical good thing to want to be married. It's a biblical good thing to want to have children. It's a biblical thing to want to have good thing to be provided for and eat. And I mean, things that are good to have fellowship. I, but when we, I've said this so many times, but when we put the I have to have this thing, in front of that thinking, it is idolatry. 
and we'll warp any scripture to make sure we get what we want and justify it to other Christians. A big danger. <clears throat> Fourthly, take heart and rest in the truth of God's providence at work in our everyday life. Even if we've blown it, even like Israel here, God is still at work as sovereign of the universe. Uh, he is able to orchestrate what no human could ever do. When we come to the end of ourselves and our human solutions, just as Hannah did, as we saw in chapter 1, we can cast our cares upon him and trust him to work in the everyday events of, of life. And trust him for the truth of Romans 8.28. God causes all things to work together for good. Even when we've blown it, even when we're here, when maybe we should have been there, God takes us where we are and works things for good because he's conforming us to the image of his son. And as I mentioned before, I think about a particular neighbor, I think about a physical therapist, for our granddaughter Lila, you may have a friend, a church, an article you read, a message you heard, an acquaintance in your neighborhood, that all was part of God's weaving into your life to bring about his perfect plan and have you in contact and have you find this solution and answer your prayer. It's amazing what a sovereign God we have. And if you journal, you're able to look back then and see the work of God in your life and in the lives of your loved ones and see his faithfulness to you and how he worked to direct you in the past. I remind you he's worthy of our trust today when we don't know what's going to happen and tomorrow when we have no clue what's going to happen. And our passage today reminds us of the truth of God's sovereignty and power. Even when he permits people to make foolish choices, he has a purpose and, as I said, uses all things to work together for good. What a comfort to know that even when we have acted foolishly and made sure we got our own way or made decisions based on self-will rather than God's will, he still has a purpose and a work to make the good, the bad, the mundane, all work together for his purpose, to make us more like Christ. I love what Jerry Bridges says in his book, Trusting God. While it is certainly true that God loves us, <clears throat> it does not protect us from pain and sorrow. It is also true that all occasions of pain and sorrow are under the absolute control of God. If God controls the circumstances of a sparrow, how much more does he control the circumstances that affect us? God does not walk away and leave us to the mercy of uncontrolled random or chance events. That which should distinguish the suffering of believers from unbelievers is the confidence that our suffering is under the control of an all-powerful, all-loving God. Our suffering has meaning and purpose in God's eternal plan, and he brings or allows it to come into our lives only those things which are for his glory and for our good. He goes on to ask this question, which you guys have to ask yourselves. The question that we are faced with is, can you trust God? Is he dependable? Is he enough? Is he adequate in your life? And then the second question in the same line is, can you trust God? Do you have a relationship with God but that has such a confidence in him that you believe he is with you in your adversity even though you do not see any evidence of his presence and his power. And I love what he goes on to say, and I close with this thought. 
He said, I acknowledge it often seems more difficult to trust God than to obey him. The moral will of God given to us in the Bible is rational and reasonable, but the circumstances in which we must trust God often appear irrational and inexplicable. Obeying God is worked out within the well-defined borders of God's re revealed will, but trusting God is worked out in an arena that has no boundaries. We do not know the extent, the duration, the frequency of the painful, adverse circumstances in which we must frequently trust God. We are always coping with the unknown. And he says this, yet it is just as important to trust God as it is to obey God. I pray that each of you truly does know personally this God. It is only possible by faith in his son, Jesus Christ, who hung on a cross because of your sin, taking the penalty and the wrath of God, paying for your sin and mine. And when we turn from our sin and repent and put our faith and confidence in Jesus alone, we enter into a relationship with this great almighty God of providence and God of sovereignty. Let's pray. Father, I do thank you for how amazing you are. I thank you that you are the same yesterday, today, and forever, and you are doing the same types of things working through everyday routine events in order to answer our prayers, in order to orchestrate different per people and events to come into our lives. Lord, help us to live by faith. Help us to trust you when you seem absolutely silent. I pray that we would have hearts determined to lean on you and rest in you. And if there is anyone here, Lord, who hasn't yet come to that place of personal trust in you alone to be saved from the penalty of their sin, I pray that they will call upon you today to be their Savior and find in you everything that they need. In Jesus' name, amen.